Hello, this is Robin, and for the next hour or so, I'll be reading from the May 31st, 2023 issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The first article I'd like to read is titled, Climate Shocks Are Making Parts of America Uninsurable. It Just Got Worse. The largest insurer in California said it would stop offering new coverage. It's part of a broader trend of companies pulling back from dangerous areas. The climate crisis is becoming a financial crisis. This month, the largest homeowner insurance company in California, State Farm, announced that it would stop selling coverage to homeowners. That's not just in wildfire zones, but everywhere in the state. Insurance companies, tired of losing money, are raising rates, restricting coverage, are pulling out of some areas altogether, making it more expensive for people to live in their homes. Risk has a price, said Roy Wright, the former official in charge of insurance at the Federal Emergency Management Agency and now head of the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, a research group. We're just now seeing it. In parts of Eastern Kentucky, ravaged by storms last summer, the price of flood insurance is set to quadruple. In Louisiana, the top insurance official says the market is in crisis and is offering millions of dollars in subsidies to try to draw insurers to the state. And in much of Florida, homeowners are increasingly struggling to buy storm coverage. Most big insurers have pulled out of the state already, sending homeowners to smaller private companies that are straining to stay in business a possible glimpse into California's future if more big insurers leave. Growing catastrophe exposure. State Farm, which insures more homeowners in California than any other company, said it would stop accepting applications for most types of new insurance policies in the state because of rapidly growing catastrophe exposure. The company said that while it recognized the work of California officials to reduce losses from wildfires, it had to stop writing new policies to improve the company's financial strength. A State Farm spokesman did not respond to a request for comment. Insurance rates in California jumped after wildfires became more devastating than anyone had anticipated. A series of fires that broke out in 2017 many ignited by sparks from failing utility equipment, exploded in size with the effects of climate change. Some homeowners lost their insurance entirely because insurers refused to cover homes in vulnerable areas. Michael Soller, a spokesman for the California Department of Insurance, said the agency was working to address the underlying factors that have caused disruption in the insurance industry across the country and around the world, including the biggest one, climate change. He highlighted the, the department's Safer from Wildfires initiative, a fire resilience program, and noted that state lawmakers are also working to control development in the areas at highest risk of burning. But Tom Coringham, a research economist, with the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego, who has studied the costs of natural disasters, said that allowing people to live in homes 
that are becoming uninsurable or prohibitively expensive to insure was unsustainable. He said that policymakers must seriously consider buying properties that are at greatest risk or otherwise moving residents out of the most dangerous communities. If we let the market sort it out, we have insurers refusing to write new policies in certain areas, Dr. Coringham said. We're not sure how that's in anyone's best interest other than insurers. A broken model. California's woes resemble a slow motion version of what Florida experienced after Hurricane Andrew devastated Miami in 1992. The losses bankrupted some insurers and caused most national carriers to pull out of the state. In response, Florida established a, comp a complicated system, a market based on small insurance companies backed up by Citizens Property Insurance Corporation, a state mandated company that would provide windstorm coverage for homeowners who couldn't find private insurance. For a while, it mostly worked. Then came Hurricane Irma. The 2017 hurricane, which made landfall in the Florida Keys as a Category 4 storm before moving up the coast, didn't cause a particularly great amount of damage, but it was the first in a series of storms, culminating in Hurricane Ian last October, that broke the model insurers had relied on. One bad year of claims followed by a few quiet years to build back their reserves. Since Irma, almost every year has been bad. Private insurers began to struggle to pay their claims. Some went out of business. Those that survived increased their rates significantly. More people have left the private market for citizens, which recently became the state's largest insurance provider, according to Michael Peltier, a spokesman. But citizens won't cover homes with a replacement cost of more than $700,000 or $1 million in Miami-Dade County and the Florida Keys. That leaves those homeowners, homeowners with no choice but private coverage, and in parts of the state, that coverage is getting harder to find, Mr. Peltier said. Just not enough wealth. Florida, despite its challenges, has an important advantage. A steady influx of residents who remain, for now, willing and able to pay the rising cost of living there. In Louisiana, the rising cost of insurance has become, for some communities, a threat to their existence. Like Florida after Andrew, Louisiana's insurance market started to buckle after insurers began leaving following Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Then, starting with Hurricane Laura in 2020, a series of storms pummeled the state. Nine insurance companies failed. People began rushing into the state's own version of Florida's citizens plan. The state's insurance market is in crisis, Louisiana's insurance commissioner, James J. Donilon, said in an interview. In December, Louisiana had to increase premiums for coverage provided by its citizens plan by 63% to an average of $4,700 a year. In March, it borrowed $500 million from the bond market to pay the claims of homeowners who had been abandoned when their private insurers failed, Mr. Donilon said. The state recently agreed to new subsidies for private insurers, 
essentially paying them to do business in the state. Mr. Donilon said he hoped that the subsidies would stabilize the market, but Jesse Keenan, a professor at Tulane University in New Orleans and an expert in climate adaptation and finance, said the state's insurance market would be hard to turn around. The high cost of insurance has begun to affect home prices, he said. In the past, it would have been possible for some communities, those where homes are passed down from generation to generation, with no mortgages required and no banks demanding insurance, to go without insurance altogether. But as climate change makes storms more intense, that's no longer an option. There's just not enough wealth in those low-income communities to continue to rebuild storm after storm, Dr. Keenan said. A shift to risk-based pricing. Even as homeowners in coastal states face rising costs for wind coverage, they're being squeezed from yet another direction, flood insurance. In 1968, Congress created the National Flood Insurance Program, which offered taxpayer-backed coverage to homeowners. As with wildfires in California and hurricanes in Florida, the flood program arose from what economists call a market failure. Private insurers wouldn't provide coverage for flooding, leaving homeowners with no options. The program achieved its main goal of making flood insurance widely available at a price that homeowners could afford. But as storms became more severe, the program faced growing losses. In 2021, FEMA, which runs the program, began setting rates equal to the actual flood risk facing homeowners, an effort to better communicate the true danger facing different properties and also to stanch the losses for the government. Those increases, which are being phased in over years, in some cases amount to enormous jumps in price. The current cost of flood insurance for single-family homes nationwide is $888 a year, according to FEMA. Under the new risk-based pricing, that average cost would be $1,808. And by the time current policyholders actually have to pay premiums that reflect that full risk, the impacts of climate change could make them much higher. Properties located in high-risk areas should plan and expect to pay for that risk, David Marstead, head of the Flood Insurance Program, said in a statement. The best way for policymakers to help keep insurance affordable is to reduce the risk people face, said Carolyn Kowski, Associate Vice President for Economics and Policy at the Environmental Defense Fund. For example, Officials could impose tougher building standards in vulnerable areas. Government-mandated programs like the Flood Insurance Plan or Citizens in Florida and Louisiana were meant to be a backstop to the private market. But as climate sh shocks get worse, she said, we're now at the point where that's starting to crack. The next article is titled, New Oral History Peers Back at Barack Obama, His Era and Trade-Offs He Made. On a day of high drama at an international climate change conference early in his administration, President Barack Obama confronted a senior Chinese official who offered what the American delegation considered a weak commitment. 
Mr. Obama dismissed the offer. Not good enough. The Chinese official erupted. What do you mean that's not good enough? Why isn't that good enough? He demanded. He referred to a past conversation with John Kerry, then a Democratic senator from Massachusetts. I talked to Senator Kerry, and Senator Kerry said that was good enough. Mr. Obama looked at him evenly. Well, he replied, Senator Kerry is not president of the United States. That moment of sharp relief, a clash with an intransigent foreign apartheid by a young American president feeling his own way, comes to life in a new oral history project on the Obama administration to be released on Wednesday. Six years after Mr. Obama left office, the Project by Insight, a social science research institute at Columbia University, has assembled perhaps the most extensive collection of interviews from the era to date. Researchers interviewed 470 Obama administration veterans, critics, activists, and others who were in the thick of major events back then, including Mr. Obama and the First Lady, Michelle Obama, amassing a total of 1,100 hours of recordings. Transcripts of the interviews are being released in batches over the next three years, starting with a first set of 17 to be made public on Wednesday, focused on climate change, a central issue then that continues to shape the national debate today. There will be hundreds of new insights that come from this study, many of which will change our understanding of the Obama presidency and the period from 20, 2008 to 2016 more generally, said Peter Behrman, founding director of Insight and the principal investigator for the Obama Oral History Project. What makes Mr. Obama's presidency distinctive is the way it resonated around the world in the Obama moment, as Evan McCormick, who led the foreign policy part of the project, put it. One thing that becomes clear in our interviews is that the moment of great hope and expectation ushered in by the election of the first black president was a global one, he said. Oral histories of past presidencies have become valuable resources for historians and researchers in recent decades. The Miller Center at the University of Virginia has conducted such projects going back to Jimmy Carter's presidency. The Columbia Project was organized with the support of the Obama Foundation. The first tranche of interviews being made available does not include those of the former president, first lady, or other major recognizable figures from the Obama era. Instead, it is tightly focused on one issue that the researchers deemed vital to his presidency, a wonk's feast of policy discussion rather than a broader look at Mr. Obama himself or his overall eight years in power. Still, some flavor of his management behind the scenes comes through even in these limited initial interviews. As he sucked down his favorite Fiji water, Mr. Obama would tease scientists and engineers. I stayed away from you all in school, he would say. I'm a lawyer. I don't like math. I don't do math. And when Stephen Chu, his Nobel Prize winning physicist turned energy secretary, showed up with 30 slides when five would have sufficed, an exasperated president would say, Steve, we've got it. We've got it. We don't need to look at any more of those. 
The focus on climate change in the first set of interviews also highlighted the larger trade-offs Mr. Obama made between competing priorities. The transcripts make clear, for instance, how he put off major legislative action on climate change in favor of health care at the start of his tenure in 2009, perhaps dooming chances for the sweeping measure he would eventually advocate. At one point, as he was expending all of his influence to pass the Affordable Care Act, he woefully explained his priorities to Mr. Chu. Look, I know I said energy and health care, but next year, he said, energy is next. By the time he turned his attention to a clean energy plan in the form of a cap and trade system that would create market incentives to reduce greenhouse emissions, Mr. Obama's political capital, capital had been drained. The bill he pushed made it through the House, but not the Democratic-controlled Senate. With Obama, I was just so absolutely hopeful, recalled Carol M. Browner, his White House coordinator for energy and climate change policy. I just felt like we're finally here on climate change, and we were. Then the Senate would never take up the bill. Mr. Chu, who considered Mr. Obama an extraordinary president for putting aside personal politics, nonetheless gave voice to the disappointment of many of his allies that he did not try harder to pressure Congress. In his oral history interview, Mr. Chu compared Mr. Obama with President Lyndon B. Johnson, who was famous for strong-arming lawmakers into passing landmark civil rights laws and the Great Society Anti-Poverty Program. He was less connected with Congress than I would have hoped, Mr. Chu said. At one point in 2012, he recalled asking Mr. Obama if he had seen Steven Spielberg's movie, Lincoln, which recounted, recounted the moral compromises made to pass the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery. Now, I'm not asking President Obama to do immoral things, Mr. Chu said, but to shake down and use the power of the presidency to really garner votes was something I wish he had done more of. He was too much of a gentleman, too standoffish about that. After his re-election after his re-election in 2012, Mr. Obama recommitted to saving the planet from ecological ruin. Obama came into the second term clearly ready to rock and roll on climate change, said Todd Stern, his special envoy for climate change at the State Department, who recounted for the Columbia interviewers the painstaking path to the Paris Climate Accord sealed in 2015 including the scene with the Chinese official. Obama comes in like gangbusters. Mr. Obama's successor, President Donald J. Trump, subsequently pulled the United States out of the Paris Accord, but President Biden has rejoined the agreement. The oral history of organizers made a point of interviewing those dissatisfied with Mr. Obama as well, such as Bill McKibben, a longtime environmental activist and writer who helped found a 350.org, a global grassroots organization. My impatience with Mr. Obama and many others on this front is that I think they tended to group it, meaning climate change, with other problems that they faced and think about it in the same way that they thought about other things as one item on a checklist, he said. No matter how much I liked him, Mr. McKibben added, it was very clear he could care less about any of this stuff at some deep level and wasn't willing to sacrifice, suffer any political pain in order to raise the issue. 
but his advisors insisted that Mr. Obama did care and said he regretted his early failures. Just before going out to the East Room of the White House in 2015 to announce his clean power plan, imposing caps on power plant carbon emissions, he told Gina McCarthy, his Environmental Protection Agency chief, and later Mr. Biden's climate advisor, that he was determined to take action for the sake of his two daughters. I promised to do something on climate, he told her. I didn't get it delivered in my first term, and this is so meaningful. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Next article is titled, Never a Reason to Take Off Your Socks, A Flight Attendant's 12 Etiquette Rules. Air travel is going to be busy this summer. With some common sense and courtesy, could flying be pleasant? After 21 years as a flight attendant, I've seen it all. That pandemic heightened tensions on board, with the most extreme incidents of bad passenger behavior escalating to violence. More commonly, though, I see discourteous behavior lead to verbal disagreements or a general unpleasantness. As we enter the busy summer season, it's worth discussing some of the common courtesies that could make flying, dare I say, pleasant. Here are my airline etiquette rules, which aim to strike a balance between your own reasonable comforts and thoughtfulness to those around you. Everyone has the right to recline, but there's a polite way to do it. The wrong way is slamming back the seat as hard and fast as you can. That has broken laptops, spilled drinks, and caused fistfights that have caused flights to be diverted. Be aware of your surroundings before reclining, peek behind you and see what the situation is and nicely ask if that person minds. Clean up after your kids. We are not maids. Flight attendants do not have access to vacuums, brooms, or cleaning supplies that go beyond hand soap, wet wipes, and air freshener. You are not required to clean up, but it's courteous. There are knock-on effects too. Messes in the aisle can be a safety hazard, and a big cleaning job can even delay the next flight. Proactive thinking helps. Can a small child handle a large bag of snacks? If not, put them in a smaller, more manageable container ahead of time. The overhead bins aren't your personal Tetris game. The bins are first come, first serve, and economy class. You don't own the spot directly above your seat, and it's not acceptable to take out someone else's bag to make yours fit. Sliding bags to maximize space is fine, but save the complex puzzle solving for the flight attendant. And remember, small bags belong at your feet, keeping room for large bags in the overhead bins. No one wants to hear your FaceTime conversation. We don't need to hear both sides of that conversation. Plus, boarding an airplane is not the time for your goodbyes. It's time for you to concentrate on finding your seat and stowing your bags as fast as possible so the people behind you can do the same thing. While we are on the topic, no one wants to hear your movies, video games, or TikToks, so bring headphones, even for children. The middle seat gets both armrests. It is, it's the consolation prize for being squished between two people with nowhere to lean. Case closed. Headphones are a perfectly acceptable conversation ender. Overly chatty seatmate? Headphones are a great way to keep from being the sounding board for your neighbor who can't take a hint. 
It's my go-to move. After a long day of being a flight attendant, my noise-canceling headphones are my haven. I want peace on my commute home. Keep your socks on. If it's a long flight, by all means relax and take off your shoes, but there is never a reason to take off your socks. Foot smell is inescapable. Also, keep your feet to yourself. It is not acceptable to rest your feet on the armrest of the person in front, and I highly recommend putting your footwear back on to use the lavatory. Use the call button wisely. If you need something, a coffee refill, assistance with a medical issue, or help with a disruptive passenger, please use it. It is preferable to poking or tapping the flight attendant, which is not okay. Before you press it though, make sure we aren't already in the aisle with a beverage cart or a trash bag. That means we're already coming. If you are having a true emergency, please hit it several times so we know it's important. Don't discipline other people's kids. Nothing makes a flight more miserable than the back of your seat becoming a punching bag. However, if a child behind you is being disruptive, address the parents. You don't have the right to yell at someone else's child. A nice way to approach this is to ask the parents calmly and with a smile if they realize their child is kicking your seat. Then say it's bothersome. Is there any way you can make the child stop? This way you're not accusing in your tone and are asking instead of being bossy. Deal with your seating issues before you get on the plane. If your family is split up on the flight, the chaotic rush of boarding is not when flight attendants can solve it for you. The gate agents have access to the seating chart and family reservations, so please ask them first if it is possible to change your seats. Some airlines even have a policy that families with children under 13 must sit together, so the gate agent is the best place, or even better, call the airline before coming to the airport. You don't have to switch seats if someone asks you. I'm going to be unpopular here. No, you do not have to switch with someone who asks you. If you have paid extra for your seat, or even if it is just an inconvenience, you can kindly say no. If it is advantageous, like trading a middle seat for a window seat, or you are happy to help, please go ahead and swap. Flush, please. This should be common sense, but somehow it isn't. I deal with this all day, every day. I do not want to flush your deposit, and neither does the passenger after you. If you can't find the button, please look for it. I guarantee it's there on every airplane. The next article is titled, How to Lower Deaths Among Women, Giveaway Cash. Mortality rates fell by 20% among women in countries that began cash transfer programs to the poor. Children also benefited. Cash grants made directly to poor families or individuals have led to fewer deaths among women and young children, according to a new analysis of more than 7 million people in 37 countries. In countries that began making such payments, deaths among women fell by 20%, and deaths among children younger than 5 declined by 8%, researchers reported on Wednesday in the journal Nature. The impact was apparent within two years of the program's start and grew over time, the reductions in death rates were similar whether the funds came with certain conditions such as school attendance or whether they had no strings attached, the analysis found. Programs that covered bigger shares of the population or distributed larger amounts of cash produced even greater benefits. 
Countries with poor health care and high death rates had the biggest drop in deaths. Why it matters, poverty is a big killer. In 2019, more than 8% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty, subsisting on less than $2.15 per day and about half the world on less than $6.85 per day. Poverty has an insidious Poverty has insidious effects on housing stability, education, health, and life expectancy. The pandemic drove 97 million additional people into extreme poverty in 2020, according to a World Bank estimate, prompting more countries to start cash transfer programs. Of 962 such programs worldwide, 672 were introduced during the pandemic. Direct cash transfers have been shown to improve school attendance, nutrition, and use of health services. A few single-country studies have linked the payments to reduce death rates, but it was unclear whether those trends applied on a global scale. There are some concerns about whether these programs are sustainable, whether governments can and should pay for them, said Harsha Thurmurthy, an economist at the University of Pennsylvania and a co-author of the analysis. Background, small payments, big impact. More than 100 low and middle income countries have introduced cash transfer programs designed to mitigate poverty, though they differ widely in how much they pay, how often, and to whom. The new study is the first to examine the effect of cash transfers on death rates worldwide, the researchers said. They collected information on these programs between 2000 and 2019 in 29 countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, one in Northern Africa, four in the Asia-Pacific region, and three in Latin America and the Caribbean. The data included information on more than 4 million adults and nearly 3 million children. Roughly 300,000 deaths were recorded during the study. Recipients received between 6% and 13% of the per capita income in a particular country, often much less than $100. These are not amounts that are anywhere near as large as some of the amounts we're talking about in the U.S. when it comes to guaranteed income programs, Dr. Thiemurthy said. Still, the findings are relevant even for high-income countries, said Audrey Pettifor, a social epidemiologist at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill who studies cash transfers for HIV prevention and women's health. Donors often worry that beneficiaries may misuse the funds to buy alcohol, junk food, or other non-essential items, but the data do just does not back that up, she said. What's next? The benefits may extend to entire communities. The researchers could not identify the beneficiaries, so they analyzed population-level death rates. The findings suggest that cash transfers may be helpful not just to women, but to families and entire communities. These social protection programs actually account for the vast majority of the income in households in places like South Africa, Dr. Pettyforce said. One would expect these spillover effects. Burke Osler, a developmental economist in the World Bank's research division, offered an alternate explanation. Cash transfers are often accompanied by improvements to healthcare services or other infrastructure that helps communities, he noted. Maybe it's not the direct effect of people having more cash in their pocket, he said. The study did not look at adults older than 60 
are at distinct features of the programs, such as duration or frequency of the payments, whether the beneficiaries are men or women, how the money is delivered, or whether it is bundled with counseling or education. I do think it's useful to look at that in future work, Dr. Thirumuthi said. The next article is titled, Lifting Weights? Your Fat Cells Would Like to Have a Word. A cellular chat after your workout may explain in part why weight training burns fat. We all know that lifting weights can build up our muscles, but by changing the inner workings of cells, weight training may also shrink fat, according to an enlightening new study of the molecular underpinnings of resistance exercise. The study, which involved mice and people, found that after weight training, muscles create and release little bubbles of genetic material that can flow to fat cells, jump-starting processes there related to fat burning. The results add to mounting scientific evidence that resistance exercise has unique benefits for fat loss. They also underscore how extensive and interconnected the internal effects of exercise can be. Many of us pigeonhole resistance training as muscle building, and with good reason. Lifting weights or working against our body weight as we bob through push-ups, squats, or chair dips will noticeably boost our muscle size and strength. But a growing number of studies suggest weight training also reshapes our metabolisms and waistlines. In recent experiments, weight workouts boost energy expenditure and fat burning for at least 24 hours afterward in young women, overweight men, and athletes. Likewise, in a study I covered earlier this month, people who occasionally lifted weights were far less likely to become obese than those who never lifted. But how weight training revamps body fat remains murky. Part of the effect occurs because muscle is metabolically active and burns calories, so adding muscle mass by lifting should increase energy expenditure and resting metabolic rates. After six months of heavy lifting, for example, muscles will burn more calories just because they are larger. But that doesn't fully explain the effect because adding muscle mass requires time and repetition, while some of the metabolic effects of our weight training on fat stores seem to occur immediately after exercise. Perhaps then, something happens at a molecular level right after resistance workouts that target fat cells, a hypothesis that a group of scientists at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and other institutions recently decided to investigate. The researchers had been studying muscle health for years, but had grown increasingly interested in other tissues, especially fat. Maybe, they speculated, muscles and fat chatted together amiably after a workout. In the past decade, the idea that cells and tissues communicate across the expanse of our bodies has become widely accepted, though the complexity of the interactions remains boggling. Sophisticated experiments show that muscles, for instance, release a cascade of hormones and other proteins after exercise that enter the bloodstream, course along to various organs, and trigger biochemical reactions there in a process known as cellular crosstalk. Our tissues also may pump out tiny bubbles, known as vesicles, during crosstalk. Once considered microscopic trash bags stuffed with cellular debris, vesicles now are known to contain active, healthy genetic material and other substances. 
released into the bloodstream, they relay this biological matter from one tissue to another, like minuscule messages in bottles. Intriguingly, some experiments indicate that aerobic exercise prompts muscles to release such vesicles, conveying a variety of messages, but few studies had looked into whether resistance exercise might also result in vesicle formation and intertissue chatter. So, for the new study, which was published in May in the FASEB journal from the Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology, the researchers decided to examine the cells of bodybuilding mice. They first experimentally incap incapacitated several of the leg muscles in healthy adult mice, leaving a single muscle to carry all the physical demands of movement. That muscle swiftly hypertrophied, or bulked up, providing an accelerated version of resistance training. Before and after that process, the researchers drew blood, biopsy tissues, centrifuge fluids, and microscopically searched for vesicles and other molecular changes in the tissues. They noted plenty. Before their improvised weight training, the rodent's leg muscles had teemed with a particular snippet of genetic material known as MIR-1 that modulates muscle growth. In normal untrained muscles, MIR-1, one of a group of tiny strands of genetic material known as microRNA, keeps a break on muscle building. After the rodent's resistance exercise, which consisted of walking around, though, the animal's leg muscles appeared depleted of MIR-1. At the same time, the vesicles in their bloodstream now thronged with the stuff, as did nearby fat tissue. It seems, the scientists concluded, that the animal's muscle cells somehow packed those bits of microRNA that retard hypertrophy into vesicles and posted them to neighboring fat cells, which allowed the muscles immediately to grow. But what was the MIR-1 doing to the fat once it arrived, the scientist wondered. To find out, they marked vesicles from weight-trained mice with a fluorescent dye, injected them into untrained animals, and tracked the glowing bubbles paths. The vesicles homed in on fat, the scientists saw, then dissolved and deposited their MRI-1 cargo there. Soon after, some of the genes in the fat cells went into overdrive. These genes help direct the breakdown of fat into fatty acids, which other cells then can use as fuel, reducing fat stores. In effect, weight training was shrinking fat in mice by creating vesicles in mus muscles that, through genetic signals, told the fat it was time to break itself apart. The process was just remarkable, said John J. McCarthy, a professor of physiology at the University of Kentucky, who was an author of the study with his then-graduate student, Ivan J. Vichetti, Jr., and other colleagues. Mice are not people, though, so as a final facet of the study, the scientists gathered blood and tissue from healthy men and women who had performed a single fatiguing lower body weight workout and confirmed that, as in mice, MRI-1 levels in the volunteers' muscles dropped after their lifting, while the quantity of MRI-1-containing vesicles in their bloodstreams soared. Of course, the study mostly involved mice and was not designed to tell us how often or intensely we should lift to maximize vesicle output and fat burn, but even so, the results serve as a bracing reminder that muscle mass is vitally important for metabolic health, Dr. McCarthy said, and that we start building that mass and getting our tissues talking every time we hoist a weight.
You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times and the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The next article is titled, Why Does Day Drinking Feel Different? A buzz in the sun can hit harder than dinnertime drinks. Experts shed light on the science. A poolside margarita, a frosty beer at a Memorial Day barbecue. Summer, you could argue, is made for a cold drink on a hot day. But why does a daytime buzz feel different from after-dinner drinks? And is there any way to ward off the evening hangover? Perhaps, unsurprisingly, there have not been robust clinical trials evaluating the health effects of day drinking. But psychiatrists and alcohol experts said there are a few unique factors that influence how daytime drinking can differ from nighttime consumption. It's open-ended. At night, you might be more attuned to the signs it's time to stop. After your dinner winds down, for example. But the novelty of an afternoon alcoholic beverage means people don't always keep tabs on how much they're consuming, said Dr. Akhil Anand, a psychiatrist at the Cleveland Clinic. If you're drinking throughout the day and not necessarily keeping tabs on where to get your next snack, it also stands to reason that you wouldn't have food in your stomach to help slow down the rate at which your body absorbs alcohol which means you're likely to get more intoxicated over a shorter period of time. It's hot. Drinking while the sun is out, particularly in the summer, makes you more likely to become dehydrated, and dehydration can intensify the effects of intoxication. You may feel fatigued, lightheaded, woozy, or just generally out of it, said Dr. Sarah Andrews, an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at John Hopkins Medicine. On a sweaty day, You can lose more fluids than you're able to replenish, which means you also lose sodium and minerals that help your body function normally. And that's on top of the dehydrating nature of alcohol itself, which acts as a diuretic and pushes fluids out of your system by making you urinate more frequently. The hangover might arrive earlier. The earlier the drinking starts, the sooner that dry mouthed, headachey hangover feeling comes on. A mimosa brunch could translate into a dinnertime hangover, said Dr. Dinesh Alam, an addiction psychiatrist at Northwestern Medicine, though it's more likely that a hangover will start early the following morning whenever your blood alcohol content has dipped back down to zero. Because day drinking can be so dehydrating, hangover symptoms are likely to be worse, Dr. Anand said. The best ways to stave off a hangover are to drink at least one glass of water per alcoholic drink. Ensure you're eating enough, avoid sugary drinks, and of course, limit the amount of alcohol you're drinking overall, no matter what time you start. Hang anxiety can hit harder. Dehydration also accentuates the physiological effects that can come with a hangover. Shaky hands, nausea, dizziness. Sometimes bodily signs of anxiety caused by drinking can trigger actual feelings of fear and nervousness, also known as hang anxiety. In the hours or days after drinking, when you are more likely to be extra dehydrated, the anxiety may be particularly pronounced, said T. Gallagher, a clinical psychologist at NYU Langone Health. But will you get a good sleep later? That's anyone's guess. A few glasses of wine before bed is a recipe for a bad night's sleep, because of the way alcohol compromises your REM sleep and sends you trudging to the bathroom. Drinking during the day can also wreak havoc on your sleep-wake cycle, 
said Dr. Alam. You might sink into a nap, which can make it harder to fall asleep later, or you could end up powering through the day and then suffering the typical nighttime consequences that come with drinking, jolting awake at one or two in the morning. But if you have the foresight to give yourself a buffer period of three or four hours between your last drink and when you go to sleep, and particularly if you chug water and eat in the interim, your body may have a chance to metabolize the alcohol before bedtime, allowing you to get sufficient rest. The next article is titled, The Three Cheap Accessories I Use to Avoid Cleaning My Fridge. There's only one good way to clean a refrigerator, and it sucks. You take everything out, you scrub everything down, and then you put it all back together again. But with just three cheap accessories, you won't have to do that ever again, or at least not very often. Adjustable liners for the door pockets. I have a collection of condiments from around the globe in the doors of my fridge, and they all appear to leak, even when I rarely use them. Liners in darker colors hide the mess, and they're easier to spot clean too. Amelia Hensley, a mechanical engineer and cleaning expert at GE Appliances said that the coolest feature of her home cafe French door fridge is the dishwasher safe plastic mats that sit under the condiments she keeps in the door. This is my favorite thing about my door bin, she said, because those tend to get disgusting. Cafe fridges are expensive, but their mats are really easy to reproduce at home with non-adhesive plastic shelf liners like these ones from Stockroom Plus. They're the same sophisticated steely color, nearly as sturdy, and come in a 12 by 20 foot roll. I measured my own fridge doors, cut a piece to size, then pop them in under my leaky jars of jelly and chili oil. If you already have another brand of shelf liners, just make sure they're not the kind with adhesive backing, said Hensley. You want them to be able to be easily remove the mats and to clean them. And the moisture in your fridge eventually makes the sticky kind buckle. Flexible mats for the shelves. If you have a fridge with wire shelving, as I do, then you know the worst fridge messes come from leaks and drizzle Leaks that drizzle their way down from one shelf to another. But a couple of thin, washable mats, I have ones from Maynest, on the shelves will keep spills on their own level. The mats come in multiple colors and are pre-cut in sizes that fit most shelves, but you can easily trim them down where needed. I also like to overlap a few different colors for some extra rainbow joy when I open the fridge. Like the Stockroom Plus shelf liners, these have a gridded, grippy side that keeps containers in place in your fridge. But because they're thinner and more flexible, they're easier to keep flat on shelves when you're often sliding or pulling things around. A blanket for your crisper. No matter how hard you try to keep things under wraps in your crisper drawers, produce always ends up smashed and rotten at the bottom. There's always some kind of something that is inedible in there, said Hensley. But if you line your crisper drawers with something easily swappable, you won't ever have to take out those clunky, unwieldy drawers to clean them. Hensley likes to line the bottom of her crisper with thin cotton flour sack towels, which dry quickly and are generally considered safe for wrapping around food you're planning to eat. They're our pick for food prep in our guide to the best kitchen towels. If you're looking for even less labor, you can also use paper towels, said Hensley. In my own fridge, I use a mix of paper towels, flour sack towels, or sometimes just clean brown paper lunch bags to 
depending on if I am crisping already washed and dried lettuce, dusty winter beets, or easily squashed, permanently staining berries. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 31st, 2023 issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Robin. Thank you for listening.